All right, welcome to the conversation on the TYT network. Great guest for you guys. Now, Kara Eastman running in Nebraska's 2nd District. Now, a hotly contested district where Joe Biden has a good chance of winning. And Kara has a great chance of winning against the Republican incumbent. Welcome back, Kara. Thank you, I'm so glad to be here. No problem. Now, we have been here a number of times, and so I feel that we know you well. Um, and uh, that's why I was supposed to see commercials from Don Bacon Jr. calling you a radical, radical, radical. Um, <laughs> um, so I know generally they say they're gonna do that uh, to basically to all Democrats. It doesn't matter what your positions are. So I guess that leads to two questions. One is how disingenuous is that coming from Don Bacon? who made a big deal out of him being civil and that that was a big calling card for him. Yeah, it's quite a departure. I mean, in 2018, the the race, there was definitely some incivility on his part, but it's gotten off the rails this time. He is the most vulnerable Republican in Congress. And I don't mean that emotionally, I mean, his, <laughs> his space is vulnerable. And so he's, He's pulling out all the stops and it's it's ridiculous to call me radical when he has voted 93% of the time with Donald Trump and is so extreme, especially for this district, which is a swing district. Yeah, see, I wanted to ask you about that too. So let me, I'll come back to the the second part of radical ad in a second. But so he votes with Trump 93% of the time, that basically means he disagreed with a post office here or there, right? But otherwise, his name might as well be Donald Trump. If it doesn't matter what Donald Trump tweets, it matters what he does. And if you're voting with him 93% of the time, that means you're co-signing onto everything that he has actually done. And so, I guess how much has that resonated in Nebraska's second district, and how much does the media talk about it? Or do they let him off the hook? Because a lot of times what the media will do is, oh, Trump's the bad guy, but none of the other Republicans who vote with him overwhelmingly are, they're all moderates. Yeah, unfortunately, we haven't seen much media pushback. And and we've been actually fighting against this because they, they took something I said out of context, where I was saying, you know, they're calling me this. And, and he's using it out of context in all their ads and all their mailers. And, and unfortunately, I don't think we've seen too much media pushback on it. But we don't find that it's resonating too much because right now I'm three points up in the polls. Yeah, and so this is a super tight race last time. Cara Eastman is a just Democrat. She ran as one in 2018 and 2020. And last time you barely lost by under two points. This time around, obviously the momentum is in your direction in fundraising, polling, you name it, right? And so that's why I asked about the media reaction because they did a trick on you that they did on me, taking something where you were joking and then pretending you were serious. You were literally mocking them saying, according to them, I'm a big socialist or something along those lines. And they just took the part where you said I'm a big socialist as if you were serious. And that's why you need the refs, Cara, right? To tell people, oh no, that's a lie, she was clearly joking. Because if the refs don't do their job, doesn't that give everyone an incentive to pretend that people were serious when they weren't, to take their stuff out of context? You could do that to Don Bacon too, right? I mean, you don't have to because he's he's a Trumpy. So <laughs> the things he says are naturally outrageous. But it's 
Doesn't it cheapen our politics if the refs don't do their job and the media doesn't call that out for the dishonest ad that it is? Absolutely, and I and I think it's one of the the reasons why some of Trump's attacks on the free press have worked. And and we need people to push back on this stuff, no matter what the district looks like. And we need, you know, it, it really undermines the way that voters are perceived. And I'm tired of hearing that rhetoric from people like Don Bacon that they think that his he thinks his voters, he thinks his constituents or people in this district are going to buy that stuff. Nobody says. That 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 word, I'm you know erratic, like saying that that way. That's crazy. Nobody talks like that, and and yet he believes that the voters are are not as smart as they are. And so we're we're putting our faith in the voters. We're putting our faith in the fact that they've gotten to know me over the past four years, and we're also reminding them about all the work I've done in the community that has been creating safe and healthy housing for kids. That has been creating investments in our community. I love this community so much. This is where we chose to raise our daughter. And and we're just pushing back by saying like, look, this is who I actually am. And and he's painting me as a caricature of someone who doesn't exist. And and the, but the fact is, he is Trumpian. He he votes with Trump. He doesn't stand up to Trump. Even our US Senator Ben Sass recently stood up to Trump. Don Bacon is to the right of Ben Sass, which is unbelievable. Yeah, so Cara, you did such radical things as start the Omaha Healthy Kids Alliance. I mean, really, you're for healthy kids? That does sound outrageous. It was to stop lead poisoning, another outrageous idea to stop lead poisoning of our kids. And you helped to raise more than $13 million for green, safe, and healthy housing in Omaha. Whereas Don Bacon has collected money from the NRA, which I'm Given to understand that they support any and all guns and weapons, and including cop killer bullets, by the way. Boeing, which is a defense contractor and has planes falling out of the sky. And Abbott Labs, which helped addict the country to opioids. So, hmm, which one sounds a little bit more radical? That's right. He's taken over $800,000 in corporate PAC money this cycle. He's taken over 200,000 from pharmaceutical companies, from health insurance companies, and then votes to pass legislation in their in their defense, right? That that actually helps their bottom line. And and he was notorious, notorious for voting not just yes, but I know I'm not supposed to swear, and he did it, but H E L L, yes, <laughs> to <laughs> repeal the Affordable Care Act. Uh, this is this is pretty radical. This is pretty extreme. Somebody who votes against the Violence Against Women Act, against the ERA, for the Republican tax bill, against uh, lowering prescriptions in the middle of a pandemic, and just recently voted against the Heroes Act, which embedded in it was the Restaurants Act that would have brought so much money to our district to actually help help save local independent restaurants right now. That's pretty extreme. Yeah, no, I, I keep focusing on that word, whether it's radical or extreme, um, because. It's extreme to take $200,000 from a drug company in the middle of a pandemic and then vote to have give people less health care because it benefits your donor. That's sick. You trying to help kids prevent lead poisoning, <laughs> that's the most normal benign, like literally that I could ever think of. And so, it, the imbalance and the reason I overfocus on the media is because they're the ones who create that imbalance. They should be 
pointing out to the American people what the real facts are, in this case, Nebraska's second district. One person tried to help kids with her career, the other person tried to help drug companies because he got $200,000 to do it. I mean, it's just an absolute crime that that's not called legalized bribery. But at this point, you're actually out raising him with small dollar donations, and that's driving them nuts. So on the other hand, when it comes to dark money, they're still outspending you. There's $7 million poured in dark money, at least 4.6 million of that is in favor of Don Bacon. And so, Cara, would you still look to get money out of politics, even though you're out raising Don Bacon at this point? Oh, absolutely. This is, I mean, this has to be one of our biggest priorities. I mean, the system is so broken. Look at how much, in the middle of this pandemic, look at how much money is being spent on elections. It makes me sick that when I am used to raising money for good things, for investments in healthy housing for kids, but instead we're having to raise money to combat the despicable things, the lies that are being spread about me. We absolutely have to work on getting money out of politics. There's no question about it. So you mentioned Ben Sass, I want to go to him because he had really harsh words for Trump. He said he was kissing the butts of dictators. He said that he was treating the presidency like a business opportunity for his family, i.e. that he is corrupt and that he was flirting with white supremacists. So now that's from a really right wing senator in Nebraska. That leads me to think, Cara, that even Sass is worried about statewide in Nebraska, showing you the amount of damage done by Trump to the Republican Party. And secondly, it, it, is, it seems like it's embarrassing to Don Bacon that he can't even go 10% of the way there, even though he's in the most moderate district in Nebraska. Right, it, I mean, it's, it's surprising that Don Bacon has refused to stand up to Trump the way that he has. And it, frankly, it's, it's immoral and, and in no way does it represent this district. Don Bacon has been very clear that he represents the people who voted for him. This is a split district, the Republican advantage has shrunk quite a bit. About a quarter of the district are registered independents. And, and frankly, as a Democrat here, I'm tired of my, my representatives telling me they don't represent me. Yeah, that's exactly right. I got no interest in any representative of any party representing Abbott Labs instead of their constituents. And when he pretends to be a moderate, he's faking bacon, if you will. And when he pretends to represent the constituents, again, he's faking bacon. So, Cara, we gotta go, but I need everybody to realize EastmanForCongress.com is where you can go if you wanna help Cara keep kicking Don Bacon's ass on fundraising and volunteers. And and the reason why, guys, is so important, we'll have these links down below if you're watching later on YouTube or Facebook, is because Cara would win in what used to be a red district. A progressive winning in a red or purple district is of enormous importance to show that progressives can do better than corporate Democrats in districts like that. And that's why Cara's race is really has massive national importance. So Cara, thank you again for joining us, we really appreciate it. Thank you, I appreciate you, take care. You too.
All right, back on a conversation on the TYT network. Joining us now is Tom Lobianco. He is the Washington political correspondent for Business Insider. Previously covered the White House for the Associated Press and Congress for CNN. He's also the author of Piety and Power, Mike Pence and the Taking of the White House. Tom, welcome to TYT. Thank you, Jang. Good to be here. All right, so let's do it. Let's get into Mike Pence. So yeah. I. I want to talk about 2024, whether he's going to run, etc. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about the debate performance, but first, I want to find out who he is. So, um, sometimes people write that he was a failed lawyer. Uh, I want to start there because it might really lead into his religiosity. What does that mean? Why? Why is he a failed lawyer? Yeah, you know, he didn't really practice law that much. I'll try to do a. Um Kind of a, a lightning round of uh, Mike Pence history here. You know, he uh, grew up in Columbus, Indiana. Uh, went to college in Southern Indiana. Um, tried a couple times on the uh, the LSATs. Eventually gets into IU Law in Indianapolis. And um, you know, he practices kind of sorta for about three years, from like 1980, uh, 1985 to 1987 thereabouts. Boy, he's really interested in his running for office and. I want to make a couple of key distinctions here because I've seen some other reporting about, you know, people seem to think that Pence always wanted to be president, always thought he would be president. Back in the 80s, in 86, 87, when he makes his first run for Congress, he thought he was just going to be a congressman. That was his main focus. But, you know, the lawyer thing is not really. He didn't really do it from the folks I talked to who knew him back then. He he wasn't into it. He was not very good at it. I think he represented like some tow companies um, in some civil matters in, uh, south of Indianapolis. Um, but what he was doing most of that time, it actually kind of created a problem for him and Karen Pence back then um, because they weren't really pulling in any money. Was he was campaigning? He was, he was running for office. So mm-hmm. you know, practical legal experience, not a ton. I mean, not. Quite Courtroom experience, not by any right. stretch. Um, you know, yeah, political experience, plenty. Yeah, okay. So that doesn't sound like a failed lawyer. It just sounds like a guy who didn't want to be a lawyer, and that that's certainly yeah. fair enough. Um, and so, um, is he already religious at that point, or? And I guess what I'm trying to suss out with the lawyer question is: is the religion thing real, or is it like George W. Bush, a political strategy? Uh, Bush's was the most brazen, you know, clear example of, yeah, I'll pretend to be religious so I could win because I can't win without that in Texas. Uh, plus, but he had the addiction issues and he got, and, and, you know, that, that helped him become more religious. What is it with Pence? Is it real or not? You know, the funny thing is with him, what I found, and for the book, I actually spent a fair amount of time. Trying to understand his personal practice of faith, as as opposed to the political Christian right, and I tried to see those things as two distinct things. Um, he struggles personally with leaving the Catholic Church, and you and you see that he it takes him really 16 years from what he sees as his conversion experience in 1978 to 1994, where he really leaves the the Catholic Church to go join an evangelical mega mega church just south of Indianapolis. But when it comes to the politics of it, you know, we we tend to see him more in the confines of the Christian right, um, culture warrior, you know, fighting over things like gay marriage, abortion, all these you know hot button social issues, and 
as I did the research on this book, I really tried to understand him, his personal practice. I attended his church, one of the churches he used to go to up on the north side of Indianapolis, and just to get a feel for like the, you know, is this like a, is this fire breathing Southern Baptist, you know, Reformed Baptist style evangelical? Or is this just kind of like, you know, mid 90s box store megachurch? And and the answer for his, at least his personal practice was the latter. So for me, it kind of, it created a big question of, all right, well, if this guy is practicing this way, then why does he get into the, you know, some of these end times discussions, you know, where he'd start one, you know, they, they talk about how uh, uh, they kind of hint at with John, people like John Hagee and Robert Jeffress, um, sort of the modern versions of uh, Pat Robertson and, and Jerry Falwell. Um, why, is the, why does he get into that stuff? Why does he even talk about it if he does not personally believe that himself? I mean, he does not come from that world. He doesn't live in that world, at least in terms of his practice. And um, I got, um, one of his friends, I would say, moderately toasted. Um, yeah, <laughs> pretty. You know, there's a few drinks, um, and we were talking about this. And I just asked him. I was like, "Man, why does he do this? Like, he doesn't. I mean, as best I can tell from talking with people who know him, you know, as best I can tell, he doesn't think that you know, if you repopulate Israel with nothing but Jewish folks and then rebuild the the Temple of Solomon for a third time, that you know, magically the you know Christ will appear in the second coming. And I'm sorry, I shouldn't. I don't want to be dismissive of that. I mean, that's you know, that's personal faith. Um, yeah, Tommy, you leave that to me. Uh, I'll be dismissive of it. <laughs> Uh, but keep going, yeah. Okay, so does he believe in fairies and and stardust and Jesus coming back after rebuilding uh, Solomon's temple? The answer is a lot of Americans do. That's why you want to be respectful of it. I do a show where I'm allowed to give my perspective, and so I don't have to be respectful of it. It's totally cuckoo for cocoa puffs, and we'll talk about that in a second as it relates to politics. But the, the, Tom, you're getting at the heart of it. That's why I'm looking forward to what your conclusion was because. It's not just Pence, it's, I wonder this about almost all the Republican mm -hmm. politicians. Are they genuinely nuts or do they wanna take advantage of and con the people who might believe it? Maybe they believe it for good reasons, even though it isn't remotely true. And maybe they believe it for bad reasons, but but basically they wanna con them into getting their votes. Which Both are bad, but I, I literally don't know which one it is. For for Pence, and this is what his friend told me, is that it was it's pandering. He said, I asked him about this. I said, you know what? There's deep concerns. There's very real foreign policy concerns about what this might mean mean for the balance of power in the Middle East, whether we're taking sides, um, you know, whether you're starting to get into things like you know nuclear war, things like that. I mean, this is it's all very sensitive stuff. And I kind of I phrased I framed the question to him that way, and I said, you know, you know, Mike Pence. Who came up in the Dick Luger political machine back in the 80s, and you know does in private at least seem to practice some measure of normal far not normal but you know moderate foreign policy, some measured foreign policy, and yet he goes and he'll give speeches to John Hagee's group, Christians United for Israel, which is a very very powerful on the right. Um, and I asked his friend that, and he said, "Oh, he's just pandering. That's what he's doing. He's just pandering for votes." And yeah. I, I guess that kind of shocked me, you know, because we get these two, we get one caricature of Pence that's out there is that he is a, you know, flaming ideologue that he's, a, you know, kind of like the, um, a, a, you know, Christian theocrat, and and frankly, I did not see that. Um, 
when I was doing the research for the book, and you know, we we write about this a little bit. He says that he's a you know Christian conservative and a Republican in that order, but really foremost is the thing that he doesn't say, which is that he's a politician, and you see that repeated throughout his career. So, you know, yeah. as of now, he's on the Christian right. Could that change? Yeah, easily. Yeah, I'm actually strangely comforted by that. I'd rather that he was <laughs> lying and pandering and faking it than actually believe the end times theology, because. Uh, look, Tom, actually, you shouldn't be reserved about it either. It's not like end times theology is not Christianity. Uh, it is something made up in America in the 1970s and 80s by a bunch of preachers about how they need to rebuild a temple and destroy the Al Aqsa Mosque. There was no Al Aqsa mm -hmm. Mosque when the Bible was written. So it's just total BS, uh, so called interpretation uh, of, of theology. And but it involves Armageddon and World War Three yeah. and billions of people being slaughtered before Jesus comes back. That is a very, yeah. very dangerous thought. And for the vice president yeah. to entertain that, let alone let alone actually believe it. I mean, let me put it to you this way, Tom: If a Muslim believed that in their version of that, <laughs> yeah, that would be an issue in presidential politics, wouldn't it? Yeah, easily. It's yeah. It's <laughs> let alone if if a, if a politician said, "I'm a Muslim, a progressive, and a Democrat in that order." My guess is people would go, "Whoa, what do you mean? Oh, okay, so you're gonna run the place like you care most about your religion, Islam?" And they would find that outrageous. Tom, aren't we soft peddling things because Pence is a Christian and we're afraid of offending other Christians? And if we were being honest, we'd tell people. That end times theology is totally nuts, and it's a real danger to the world if the vice president actually believes it. Yeah, you know, um, well, a couple of things there. Number one is for you know for your viewers, I would urge them, and this is really look. I was raised Catholic on the East Coast um, because I'm a coastal elite. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> my family did not have enough money to be elite, but here we are. Um, so. Mm -hmm. I, I was raised Catholic, right? I didn't know any of this stuff. I've never heard of that. You know, the revelation, that's like a that's a thing from an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie in the, the end of the 90s, you know, like Y2K, uh, whatever. Like I didn't know any of this stuff. Very big in some parts of the Midwest, certainly in the South. Um, you know, look, the thing about this, and I write about it in the book, and I, I, I kind of I tried to avoid it at first. And you know, I guess you could say that's an implicit bias the other way, not wanting to see it that way. Um, but I just kept on running into this, certainly with the creation of televangelism in the late '70s, the moral majority when it you know when it becomes a political movement. And see it repeated. For for your viewers, what I would urge them to go Google and check out premillennial dispensationalism. Dispensationalism. And just you know, Google will self-correct for you if it, you can't spell that one right. This I think it's two L's and two N's on the premillennial. Dispensationalism itself, generally speaking, on the theology is pretty well established. Certainly by this point in American history, comes over from Britain in the 1800s. Where you start to get into questions of like, okay, where do people fall on this? You know, do you think this where there'll be a fiery end of the world? You know, will Christ return in the flesh? That's where the premillennial part comes in. So when you're googling that. 
The other thing I would recommend people look into is go check out a, a series of books called Left Behind. It was written by a pastor named Timothy LaHaye. On the right, I think a lot of folks probably know who Timothy LaHaye is. It's spelled L-A-H-A-Y-E. LaHaye is pretty well known on the right, probably not yeah. known to most mainstream Americans. And this, he kind of he kind of serializes and dramatizes the actual revelation and then some of the prophets, Daniel, Isaiah. And I think in the remake, they made a movie out of it in 2014 with Nicolas Cage. When you look at that and you just go go to the Wikipedia page, just get like a very cursory read on it. It'll help you see for the televangelist world why they like Donald Trump so much. Because for a certain certain part of that group, this is about bringing back Jesus in the flesh and the end of the world. Yeah, that's right. I think the movie you were thinking of with Nicolas Cage's Ghost Rider. Um, no, <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> it's a negative Ghost Rider. Um, so uh, yeah, look, I want people to know it and I want people to check out your book, Piety and Power, Mike Pence and the Taking of the White House. Because it's no joke, uh, a giant chunk of this country believes that Trump and Pence and others should be elected and reelected because they literally think they're going to bring Jesus back. And the way you do that is by killing billions of people. That is the most dangerous yeah. philosophy there is on the planet. And those folks control the nukes. So serious as a heart attack. All right, Tom, uh, before I let you go, I gotta ask this real quick. 2024, yeah. uh, Mike Pence is almost certainly going to run, one would imagine, whether Trump wins or doesn't win. Um, does he have any chance at all or is he, was he picked by Donald Trump to be boring vanilla guy and and hence boring vanilla guy does not stand a chance in 2024. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's, as I write in the book, in many ways, he was kind of foisted upon Trump by Paul Manafort and Reince Priebus. Um, and uh, that's that's a whole other story. Um, in, in terms of 2024, you know, I've been keeping a sort of a regular list of the Prospective 2024 candidates for Business Insider. Um, you know, all the names we hear about Tom Cotton, Josh Hawley, um, Marco Rubio again, Ted Cruz again. None of these people have declared um, all, you know, very, you know, potential possible candidates, is, you know, with the chattering class in Washington is talking about. And Pence tops the list. Pence is the kind of, he walks into this, declared or not, as the de facto front runner. But what you get every time, every time, at least when I talk to Republicans about this, is He's the front runner, like Jeb Bush was the front runner. And I think that's, he could walk into it at the front of it, but he's gonna have to really fight if he wants to survive. Um, now, you know, look, in Pence's orbit, they've always thought that the best way for him to win was to, you know, two, two terms of Trump, ride the coattails at the end of that, be like an H.W. Bush type figure, um, try to ride out Trump's popularity. As it stands right now, that does, that looks pretty unlikely. Um, yeah, could change. We never know. Um, but he's all expectations are he is going to run. As, as I write in the book, he spent a long time running, really since 2008, um, behind the scenes without ever declaring. Um, and a lot of people do that. That's not unsurprising. Yeah. Um, so you know, when you mentioned yeah. in the beginning, he just wanted to go to Congress, uh, and then pe- other people say he always wanted to be president. I got news for them: every politician wants to be president. <laughs> okay, that's and every politician is a liar, which then leads me to not every, but almost every. 
Um, there's now some <laughs> progressives who don't take corporate PAC money. And, and so I, for the first time in a long time, I have to say, not every politician. Um, but uh, that's why I wanna end on this quick note here. I mentioned the debates earlier. Uh, in the debates, he was uh, said that he was outraged by Biden being in favor of NAFTA. Uh, when he was in Congress, how did Pence vote on NAFTA? Pence was pro NAFTA. As, as part of the research I've, for the book, I went and got some archival footage of two of his two of his debates, 1990 and 2000. And you know he's up there on stage in 2000, and they pressed him. Look, his old district was a Rust Belt district. It was all these manufacturing towns, just that ring Indianapolis. It's the auto parts feeder towns that would send their parts into Indy where they'd build them. And look, Pence was pro NAFTA for 16 years until he wasn't. Um, I'll tell you a great little anecdote. Um, if you guys remember the the carrier um, uh, uh, factory out in India, it ended up becoming a big issue in 2016. Um, Pence was against giving when he was governor. He was against giving them economic aid to help them try to you know either keep some workers here or to do anything really. And then Trump comes in obviously and says, "Oh no, we're going to do that." So afterwards, after this, right after he was elected, right before the the inauguration, one of somebody long long time acquaintance of his walks up to him and asks him straight up. He says, "Governor, you oppose this?" <laughs> I was like, "But why are you supporting it now?" And Pence just slaps him on the back and says, "Well, we're with you now." Yeah, well, there you have it. Yeah, I agree. That's Mike Pence in a nutshell. Um, you know, there's this. Hilarious dichotomy that in Washington, politicians are the most respected people in the city. In the rest of the country, they're the least respected profession. And Mike Pence is a character study in why. Um, okay, uh, Tom Lobianco, the book again is Piety and Power, Mike Pence and Taking of the White House. Thank you for joining us, we really appreciate it. Thank you, Cenk.